Whenever there's even a hint of a radioactive leak at a nuclear site, be it a reactor, uranium mine, weapons manufacturer, waste storage dump, or anything else, the first thing the public is told is that there's no danger, and whatever happens is not significant, so there is absolutely nothing to worry about, especially as regards your health. But the standard for interpreting the relative dangers of radioactive exposure on the human body is something called reference man. And the problem with reference man is that, as one genuine expert explains, Our regulators, our scientific bodies, our governments never stopped to look, listen, or reconsider when the same basis of radiation measurement and regulation was applied to the general population including pregnant women, including infants, including elders, including girls. There should not have been the 60-year wait for enough data to be able to now say, yes, female bodies are harmed more than male bodies, no matter what age. Well, when you learn how the entire system for evaluating the dangers of radioactive exposure is a Western Caucasian adult male with very specific physical characteristics, and that he in no way represents the dangers the exact same amount of radiation can pose to a person of a different gender, weight, race, ethnicity, and so much more, you begin to realize that all those official reassurances from experts might just be diversions so that you don't realize how you're trapped in that terrible radioactive seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, is what I consider to be one of the most important interviews I've ever conducted. It's on the concept and usage of Reference Man, the model for understanding the relative dangers of any radioactive exposure. But who is Reference Man? What is he? Where did he come from? And how accurate is any assurance of safety based upon this theoretical being? We explore the concept and assumptions that underlie all of our beliefs about radiation dangers with two top experts, Mary Olson, founder and acting director of the Gender and Radiation Impact Project, and Dave Lockbaum, former director of Nuclear Safety Project of the Union of Concerned Scientists. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world and more honest nuclear information than all the programs that got nominated for an Emmy this week. All of it coming up 
in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, July 13, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting in Japan, where Fukushima Prefecture will bar spectators from the Olympic events that it hosts this summer, they're claiming it's because of rising COVID-19 infections and not giving a single mention to the radiation that is still exists from the 2011 triple meltdown of nuclear reactors in that prefecture. Japan has been hoping to use the Olympics to showcase its so-called recovery from that triple meltdown, earthquake, and tsunami, but it's not to be. Fukushima is hosting softball, which is an all-woman's sport, and baseball games at Azuma Stadium. In Tokyo, four officials from Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, and operators of Fukushima's nuclear plants were summoned to Tokyo District Court as part of an ongoing trial. Despite a government order to bring all nuclear power plants in Japan up to safety standards, especially to avoid tsunamis, TEPCO and the Fukushima plant officials did not consider it necessary to improve anti-tsunami measures with deadly results. During the trial, TEPCO Vice Chairman Sakai Muto denied knowing about the reports that recommended to raise the anti-tsunami wall. He said he was not competent in this area. You think? The judge reprimanded him, reminding the accused of his responsibilities when he was vice president. In France, EDF, the multinational electric utility company, has allocated hundreds of millions of euros to launch a construction program for new reactors called the EPR2, despite the latest safety failures in Taishin, China, of an EPR, and endless delays and cost overruns in France, Finland, and the UK as well as plans for six EPRs in India. One site at Flamanville in France has been under construction since 2008, and President Macron, despite being fiercely pro-nuclear, has declared on several occasions that the EPR in Flamanville would need to be operational before any decision to build other reactors could be made. We'll have a link up to Harvey Wasserman's op-ed on the collapsed Florida condo sending a giant nuclear warning because South Florida authorities have now ordered inspections of large buildings over 40 years old, and Harvey points out the majority of nuclear reactors in the United States are also around 40 years old and deserve to have the same kind of examinations. We'll be posting links to this article on NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 525, and two other articles as well from Robert Jacobs of the Hiroshima Peace Institute, a counterpunch editorial brilliantly smacking down another editorial opinion piece that appeared on Counterpunch, extolling the virtues of nuclear power and castigating its opponents as paranoid and ill-formed. Bo made short work out of that one. And the other link we will have is to Dennis Rich's translation of a French report on the experimental nuclear fusion reactor and the problems with it, the first of three articles. Now here's this week's very special interview. Sometimes I am privileged to interview people who reveal core information that pertains to every aspect of our nuclear awareness. That's the case this week with two very special interviewees. Mary Olson is founder and acting director of the Gender and Radiation Impact Project. She served from 1991 to 2019 as staff biologist and senior radioactive waste policy analyst at Nuclear Information and Resource Service. 
Her work on radiation education led her to question whether biological sex is a factor in radiation harm. And she has presented her findings at the Vienna Conference on the Humanitarian Impacts of Nuclear Weapons, the UN Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review of 2015, the International Committee of the Red Cross Asia Regional Meeting in St. Petersburg, Russia, and twice at the EU Gender Summit in Brussels in 2016 and London in 2018. She founded the Gender and Radiation Impact Project in 2017. My second interviewee is Dave Lockbaum, who was for more than 20 years Director of the Nuclear Safety Project of the Union of Concerned Scientists. He is a certified nuclear engineer who has taught reactor technology for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. He's the co-author with Edwin Lyman and Susan Stranahan of the book Fukushima, The Story of a Nuclear Disaster, and he is also a board member of the Gender and Radiation Impact Project. We spoke on Thursday, July 8, 2021. Mary Olson and Dave Lockbaum, thank you so much for being my guest this morning on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for inviting us. Likewise, Libby. Glad to be here. We're going to be talking about the concept of reference man as a standard for measuring radiation exposure. But before we get to specifics about the model, I think it's important that people have an understanding of the context from which this concept emerged. So let's start at the very beginning. When was it first known that there was such a thing as radiation and that it was dangerous? In Western science, we go back before the Curies, but not by much, just a decade or two into the discovery of particle emissions. And pretty quickly, people started noticing that this had an impact on living tissue and actually plastered radioactive materials onto tumors and saw tumors shrinking with it. So one of the first understandings was that radiation did in fact make a difference to living cells, in this case, particularly cancer cells, which is still today one of the places where radiation is is applied. But I want to just add that I am aware through having been to Australia and made friends with Aboriginal peoples, that their traditions and understanding of the natural world have an understanding of radioactivity that goes back eons. And likewise, the Western Shoshone people that I know talk about uranium as part of the living system of the planet as ancient knowledge for their people. So, you know, we can always say that Western science is the be-all and end-all, and our transit through knowledge is what we pay attention to. And certainly, it's the bulk of the story we're going to tell today. But I just want to acknowledge that we're latecomers to understanding radioactivity. I would just add that in doing interviews and getting to know people from Saskatchewan who are First Nations, Dinesuline, that they have said that in their tradition, they talk about the black rock, which is dangerous and needs to be left in the ground. And it's only dangerous when it's brought above ground. And for them, the black rock is uranium. And they were absolutely correct about that. That's ancient knowledge. Going to a more recent, if you can call it that, set of knowledge, what was it that we learned about radiation, radioactivity from Madame Curie and her experiments in isolating radium? Others had discovered radioactivity, but Marie Curie spent the time to concentrate enough radium to have one gram of it 
and then to figure out how to measure precisely the number of radioactive events coming off that one gram of radium per second. And the number is quite astounding. It is 37 billion disintegrations per second. Today, the more common unit is a becquerel, which is defined as one disintegration per second. So the Curie is an enormously large unit of measure. It is 37 billion becquerels. Was there any awareness during her lifetime of the danger posed by exposure to this level of becquerels? It was all new to these people. There were people who got radiation sickness in the course of their experimentation. There were people who died young because of their exposure, including potentially a couple of her children. And Marie herself did not live to be a terribly old lady. But at the same time, medicine was one of the first applications because there's records of people applying radium and other radioactive materials directly to tumors that were visible on the external part of a person and seeing the tumors shrink. So there was some recognition that the radioactivity was dangerous to the tumor. Unfortunately, at that point, our understanding of medicine and cancer and tumors didn't include, therefore, danger to the person as well. So some of these uh, early activities did not go well including the famous case of using radium to paint dials on the first airplane equipment for the World War I airplanes. The women who carefully painted the numbers on the altimeters and other dials for the airplanes suffered horrific consequences of radiation sickness. Those were the radium girls who also through the 19-teens and 20s were painting luminescent dials on watches. And they were told to lick the brush between their lips to get a really good point so they could get a really fine painting on the dial. And as a result of that, they were directly poisoning themselves with the radium paint. Now, that was a well-known story at the time. Before World War II, though, how well-known was the fact that there was such a thing as radiation and that it was dangerous if one was exposed to it? I would say that at this point in the history of Western society, radiation was almost completely unknown. It was a very, very small group of people who had any knowledge of it at all. And certainly during the run-up to the Second World War, it became secret. If you were working with radioactivity, nobody was supposed to know that that's what you were doing. That brings us up to the Manhattan Project to build the first atomic bomb. Officially, it began in 1942, and General Leslie Groves, the head of it, knew that radiation was a danger because he knew about the radium girls. He admits this in his autobiography. He also sought ways to get insurance coverage in case of radiation exposure to his workers, to the scientists, to the engineers. But there were security reasons why the coverage ultimately could not be done by a private firm and had to be covered by the government. And we all know the problems that have come from that ever since. Now, Groves put radiation protections in place to protect his scientists at Los Alamos, yet there is no comparable care taken to protect the local population from the dangers when they were downwind of radiation exposure because of the Trinity test in 1945. And the existence of radiation was not even mentioned in press materials prepared before that test blast. 
Do you think that this blanking out of information about radiation in the wake of the first blast was a blind spot caused by ignorance, willful neglect, intentional manipulation, wartime expediency, or was there perhaps some other reason? Maybe it's all of the above. Where there's motive, you can't extend it in a blanket way. I've worked with people in the nuclear industry, in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, in Congress, in all kinds of places. And certainly there are individuals who've had motive, have had liability, who should be engaged with as having not adequately fulfilled whatever oath they had taken or, or whatever Hippocratic oath they should have taken. But we have now people who were told by others that this was the truth, this was the fact, this was the information that those other people were given. And there wasn't a way for them to check it because of the secrecies that were imposed. So in a very broad way, you have to ask who, what, where, when, and why. You can't just plaster everybody with any one of those assertions that you made. They're all true. The suppression of information about radiation was especially true after the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki because there was almost instantaneous blackout of all information, total censorship put in place by General MacArthur that the damage caused by radiation exposure was completely censored. Journalists were restricted and could not enter Hiroshima or Nagasaki without military approval, escort, and manipulation as to where they could and couldn't go. They were told they could only report on the damage and the power of the bomb, not on the human side of it. And the Japanese people were not allowed to speak about what had happened and was continuing to happen to them. The censorship was only broken by one Australian journalist, a man named Wilfred Burchett, who published in a London newspaper. He had managed to get into Hiroshima a day before MacArthur and the occupation army, so before the censorship clampdown happened. And he subsequently published an article with an enormous headline, the largest lettering I've ever seen in a headline saying, Atomic Plague, I write this as a warning to the world, about the people of Japan dropping dead, even though they were not harmed by the initial blast. This was a month later, and they were still dying. Given the fact that all of this was happening before people's very eyes in Japan, but yet none of the information was able to get through, how did this blackout impact our perception of the bomb and what it was meant to do and what we certainly as the United States wanted it to do? I think part of that was explained by lack of knowledge, where the human consequences of exposure to radiation weren't known well enough to establish what the limits were. People knew if you got too much exposure, you might die, but there wasn't much awareness of what exposure less than that could cause cancer incidents and things like that. So there, there's a reluctance to be concerned about something until you know what the answer is, until you have a solution. You kind of downplay the problem because you don't want to inflame the populace until you can come up with it's not real good politics to explain you have a problem and don't have a solution for it. You're not going to get elected or you're not going to get promoted or you're not going to get whatever it is you want. You won't do it if you don't have a solution to today's problem. So you don't have a problem today until you have the solution. And I think that kind of explains some of the testing we did in the Pacific of our atomic weapons, the Marshall Islands and so on. We, I don't think we intentionally tried to wipe out those populations. 
or that we were more concerned with the development of the bomb than their health. It was ignorance is bliss situation, and we were late in coming up with a bliss reduction program. Well, I'd also say it's military operation. And uh, the minute you say military, you're implying it's either before, during, or after war. And war has never been about human rights, human health, human protection. It's, it's put all of those things aside and justified its activities through military imperatives. And I use the data from Hiroshima and Nagasaki in my work. And it is a, a blemish worse than a blemish. It is a tarnish and a deep cut into my immortal soul, as my mother would say, that I use data that really results from what is a war crime. These were actions during a war, and yet they were unconscionable to use the first weapons on cities full of people. So before we start talking about the blackout of information, let's talk about the event itself, which was the decision to use the very first nuclear weapons on cities full of people after testing them in New Mexico in areas that were populated without evacuation notices, without provision for the people, and to this day, no compensation for the people who were impacted as downwinders. So there's just a huge break in our claim on civilization and being compassionate people, it's as if we just either ignore it or we somehow get into justifying it or we jump over it and get into the nerdy details of it. And in any case, I personally know that the data that I use comes from the tremendous suffering and the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. And that those actions should never have happened and they must never happen again. And yet the testing in the Marshall Islands was effectively the same. The people weren't blown up the way they were in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they've never been able to return home. They've had huge health consequences. Their islands are pretty much disappearing. So the Marshallese are now basically in Arkansas. So to me, there is no way to mend this. There is no way to make it okay. There is no way to say that if we had handled the information differently, it would make it okay. My parents were young adults and it was common in California, which was closer to Japan than other parts of the United States, to assume that this action was going to lead to a reaction. People were terrified whether they had the information about radiation sickness or not the destructive capacity of the weapon was sufficient for people in the United States to be reacting in horror, in fear, in terror. And then somehow that all got made over into the 1950s and everybody has a turkey in their refrigerator. I mean, the denial of our popular culture of these events and then turning them into almost like cartoon features, which is, I think a segue into talking about Reference Man. He's basically a cartoon. Let's get to Reference Man, because after Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was radiation exposure measured at all? And if it was, how long did it take before it was? They did dose reconstructions. Do I think a dose reconstruction is a valid idea? I don't. Do I think that the kind of epidemiological work that I have relied upon for being able to draw the conclusions I've drawn about gender and radiation are solid. I actually don't, but everybody does them day in and day out and they're ignoring a huge, huge, huge piece of what they're looking at, which is 
there is a female body in addition to a male body. There is a child in addition to an adult. They are absolutely got blinders on and only looking at the male, adult male data. So, you know, in terms of exactly the history of this data, I hate to frustrate you, but I can't tell you anything more than there were dose reconstructions done. There were. Was there actual measurement of radioactivity in the post-bomb time? It was a U.S. Occup military occupation. I think there probably are published accounts. I haven't looked at them. Reference Man, who was first named Standard Man, was created in 1949. What was the thinking behind the creation of this point of reference, and how might it work in application? Well, the motivation for developing Standard Man was to allow various radiation studies and the effects of radiation on the human body to have a standard reference plane, to be able to look at a study on radiation to the spleen to another study about radiation effects on the, on the lung. Unless you have a common denominator, then you have all these numerators. It's more of an apples to oranges comparison. The reference man concept or standard man concept was an attempt to come up with a, an equalizer that allow results from one study to be compared on a more apples-to-apples -apples comparison to the re radiation results from another study. It didn't turn out that way, but that was the motivation behind it, was to facilitate the development of radiation standards and, and limits that would be meaningful. In addition, you can measure radiation as an energy field. You can measure actual down to individual emissions now if you have the best equipment available but that doesn't tell you about the impact on living tissue. So if you're going to calculate dose, you have to ask dose to whom? And in the early years of an institutional commitment to working with radioactive materials, the whom were military males and paramilitary males. There were certainly females in the Manhattan Project. I don't mean to, to overlook that part of history, but the primary engagement with radioactivity was pretty much universally male and pretty much universally young male and pretty much the definition of standard and then reference man. So it was somewhat appropriate at the time to define the reference individual as the ones who were being asked to work and serve in radioactive environments of the Manhattan Project as reference man. That was appropriate. In reading on your website, genderandradiation.org, about reference man, who was originally named Standard Man, I was taken aback by how specific it was in terms of how much blood was in the body, how much air was breathed. I mean, there's some very precise, I would say nitpicky from the outside, but very precise demarcations as to who this individual was. Who created this model and what were the groups behind it? Well, initially in 1949, it was 23 scientists from the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada who met to develop the standard man. That was later morphed into the reference man in 1963 by the International Commission on Radiological Protection, a larger body of individuals, but still largely males, fairly young, 20 to 30 years old, of pretty much the same ethnic and geological background. It was a fairly small slice of the overall human population. And that's really where my concern is. 
is the evidence that our regulators, our scientific bodies, our governments never stopped to look, listen, or reconsider when the same basis of radiation measurement and regulation was applied to the general population, including pregnant women, including infants, including elders, including women and female bodies, girls and women across the boards, because there should not have been the 60-year wait for enough data to be able to now say, yes, female bodies are harmed more than male bodies, no matter what age. We have that information now in the gold standard of the ABOM lifespan study of survivors. It shouldn't have taken 60 years of data from the ABOM survivors and the National Academy report in 2006 called The Biological Effects of Ionizing Radiation. There was a paper based on biological sex published that year by Dr. Arjun Makajani and two co-authors. I didn't see that paper, and so I did my own work independently in, in 2011. It should not have taken that long for someone to see this, and it is society's responsibility, not mine and Gender and Radiation Impact Project, to take care of everyone when it's federal licensing of activities that will impact the communities that they're located in. And the communities are not composed solely of reference men. And at some point we need to read that definition for you. Why don't you read that definition for us now? I wanna emphasize that there are eight parameters and then I'll read the parameters. There's age, there's sex, there's height, there's weight, temperature, which corresponds to respiration and metabolic rates race, lifestyle, and environment. So the official definition of reference man is defined as being between 20 to 30 years of age, weighing 154 pounds, which is also 70 kilograms. He is five foot seven inches tall, which is 170 centimeters. He lives in a climate with an average temperature between 10 and 20 degrees C, which is somewhere around 60 degrees Fahrenheit. He is a Caucasian white and a Western European or North American in habitat and custom. And also on your site is the reference to the fact that with radiation being attracted, especially radioactive iodine going to the thyroid, that the thyroid gland can be a different size based on the level of nutrition a person has had growing up with this particular male Western model being most likely to have the largest and most robust thyroid gland as opposed to someone from say the Marshall Islands. And that's even referenced in the piece that Dave wrote for the Gender and Radiation Impact Project that said that there could not be a comparable study done for other peoples of other backgrounds, quote, because it was not feasible to undertake a similar study for the many ethnic or regional populations of the world. So there's an institutional racism component to reference man as well. Obviously. <laughs> he specified as a single race, obviously. Yeah, I was more than a little bit disappointed when I did the research to find out that the reference man protocols and limits were established not based on science, but on convenience. Explain what you mean by convenience. 
they took the data that was available to the researchers from those various countries, knowing that it wasn't applicable to people with different diets and different backgrounds and different ethnicities, but because it was available. So they took it and then applied it to everybody. You knew it wasn't applicable to everybody, but because that was the easy way out and you could meet a schedule, you went with it and applied it to everybody, knowing that it wasn't applicable to everybody. I'm glad I, my name's not in there, that paperwork because I would have had to refund my college degree because I didn't earn it. If that's what I do with it. Given what has been learned, has there been any attempt made to retroactively apply the reference man exposure guidelines to the people of Japan or an adjustment to compensate for women, little boys and little girls so that there is some understanding of what the radioactive exposure actually was? Kind of just the opposite. After the Fukushima accident in 2011, because the radiation got out and was affecting the general population, the Japanese government increased the limit and basically made every worker, every citizen in Japan a nuclear worker. And they applied the nuclear worker limit, which was basically the reference man limit, to every man, woman, and child in Japan, which was uh, not the right answer to that problem. It increased levels at 20 times higher and applied them to children specifically because there was never an actual Japanese nationwide government action to do this, but there was a guideline that came actually recommended by someone who was working for the United States government during that time that the worker limit be established as the in-school exposure in Fukushima prefecture. So walking to school and all the exposure at home or playing was not even included in this guideline of what we would say two rems a year or 20 millisieverts per year, which is a phenomenally high level for a developing child. This was as very, very regressive, not what you're looking for in terms of a human value, maybe. And, and your questions are right on, but I don't know of anybody that has the authority or the inclination to do any of the steps that you are pointing towards. But I want to be clear, reference man is not a radiation limit. Reference man is the individual used to evaluate whether a radiation limit is being met or whether it will be met. Reference man is the basis for US protection standards for every licensing decision, whether to grant a license to a new nuclear power reactor or to a research lab at a university or any of those things. And it says right in our code of federal regulations in the section chapter 10, uh, which is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, it says repeatedly that reference man is the basis used today. And my dear friend, Dave Lockdown, sent me an archive of documents from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission Library, over 900 documents, each of which uses reference man as the basis for whatever it's doing. And this includes things like computer codes for risk analysis. They're all based on this individual who is standardized. My new project is to offer a new reference individual. I just think the reference man isn't the right one. In order to correct this model, to more closely reflect the realities of radiation exposure or give us something to compare against that will be more protective for the more vulnerable, 
tell us about what this next project of yours is. Gender and Radiation Impact Project is the organization that I founded, and Dave Lockbaum is one of our board members. And I am now leading in conjunction with a second organization, Beyond Nuclear, and its staffer, Cindy Folkers, a project to define reference girl. Now, the very first thing I say when I bring up reference girl is she's not good enough, but the reason she's not good enough is because we have a life cycle and the huge portion of our life cycle is the reproductive portion, which has to do with protecting our primary germline, which nobody knows what that means, but it means the genetic material that transmits from my parents to me and from me to my children that is the part of our life cycle that everybody just kind of pretends doesn't exist when it comes to radiation. And Reference Girl will help protect it a little better, but it'll take a whole new regulatory model to actually protect that genetic material. So Reference Girl is an improvement. She's a first step, but I don't want to ever make it sound like she's the solution to the overall situation we're in with, with radiation as part of our society. Now, the thing is that Reference Girl will be based in the area of our post-birth life cycle where the greatest harm happens from ionizing radiation, which is a girl under the age of 10. And if we do this, we can keep the same regulatory model that we have today, which is all based on doing calculations on a reference individual. If we choose to define a girl that has the eight parameters of reference man, we can slot her right in. We don't have to change the regulatory model at all. And my guess, this is just a guess, is that adult males will be protected times 10 and girls will be protected at all because the data shows that harm to girls is about 10 times greater than harm to males. So if we're gonna keep the level of protection we have today and base it on the girl, everybody else will be protected better and she will be protected at all. What will it take to have this new model, this reference girl replace reference man? Oh, let's talk about getting reference girl before we talk about the replacement step. Because ultimately we wanna give reference man a gold watch and thank him for his service and, and just retire him. That's what we would like to see happen with reference man. But the process of defining her, we think should be an open consultative process that reaches to the frontline communities that have been impacted the most. We already understand that the Western European North American industrial society idea isn't right because the people who are living with the most radioactivity are around mining areas and nuclear bomb factories and nuclear reactors. And so we need to look at girls in those areas and talk to people in those communities. And when we get enough information to do a draft, then we need to have expert review of it, including people who may not agree with us. And then once we have the reviewed draft, then it'll be time to start talking about adoption. And adoption is never straightforward, ever. And it's, as we've already said in this conversation, highly political. So do I intend to start by going into a rulemaking process? No, but we wanna get our reference girl drafted, reviewed and ready for adoption before we start talking about where that should happen. Unfortunately, there's, there's a, a lot of inertia associated with the status quo that's hard to break through and lead to meaningful change. 
uh, fairly recent examples that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission a few years ago was going to study the statistics around operating nuclear power plants to see if the federal limits on routine releases of radiation to the air and water sufficiently protect those exposed populations. They canceled the study because it cost too much. It cost less than a million dollars a year and would have taken about eight years. And that was too much for them. They just didn't want to fund that project. Their annual conference costs about a million dollars a year where they meet with the industry to figure out what to do and how to do it. So uh, they could either schmooze in a, in a conference or figure out if they're protecting the American population. They chose the former. We had a problem with that, that study in addition to wondering about how much it cost, uh, simply that we didn't think that the NRC was the appropriate body to conduct a study of its own effectiveness and its, do its own report card. So we would have rather to see the money go to a federal agency that would put out a request for proposal and RFP and independent researchers could respond and they could be peer reviewed and you know, actually have some science. But interestingly enough, we also believe that in addition to costing too much money, that it was gonna cost them too much public approval because the initial surveys were showing that those communities are not well. And we can't actually say that there was an outcome from that initial survey, but the communities where they were looking are not well, people are sick. So I think they may have also decided they couldn't afford the hit on their public image and possibly their operations. Saving face as opposed to saving lives. Have there been any early proposals as to age or weight or any other specifics about Reference Girl? No. There are what are called phantoms and the people I know at the International Committee on Radiological Protection it is a nonprofit and they make recommendations that then national committees pick up and then the federal regulators in each nation base their stuff on what the NCRP, National Committee for Radiological Protection, and they give advice to various regulators. So they have what they call phantoms, which are used for things like cancer treatment to evaluate standardized doses of radiation treatment of cancer for other nuclear medicine procedures. And so there are standardized female bodies, including young girls, but they're not regulatory and they don't include all the parameters of reference man. They don't include things like lifestyle, environment, climate, the factors that could genuinely change the order of magnitude of uh, exposure. So yes, there are some girl models. No, they are not regulatory models. And no, they are not the same as the reference individual is. I think there's reason for hope that the appropriate changes can be made. And an example of that would be not too long ago, it was decided that pregnant female workers or nuclear workers who wanted to become pregnant could declare that and then be exposed to a different occupational radiation exposure limit than otherwise, recognizing that the fetus was particularly vulnerable to radiation exposure. So that change was made, and it wasn't the reference man, obviously. So I think changes can be made, but that change probably took longer than it needed to be, but it did happen. So that gives me some hope that comparable changes can happen in the future and not just beating the head against the wall. 
So Dave, share with us the suggestion you made to me about civilian women and pregnancy. If you're a nuclear worker and you're pregnant or want to become pregnant, you can inform your supervisor and therefore not be exposed to the same radiation limit as a male coworker or, or a female who doesn't want that protection. So I just suggested that why not have the people who live within 10 miles or 50 miles of an operating nuclear power plant also say I'm pregnant or I want to become pregnant and therefore also be subjected to a lower radiation hazard than otherwise. Um, if it's good for a female nuclear worker, it should be good for a female person who lives in the nuclear community. Uh, it's the same concept. Why not apply it across the board? And this takes us, though, to another point that I really want people to hear. When we talk about a reference girl, we're not talking about a new standard or rule or regulation that applies to girls. And in this example about a woman in the community having a higher level of protection or a lower level of exposure, how do you do that? You can't do it in either case, which is why I am proposing a new reference individual that will require that reference man be retired and that reference girl be used in the exact same way that reference man has been used to represent everyone. And likewise, if a pregnant woman needs less exposure, then the entire community should have less exposure because any woman has the capacity to become pregnant without even knowing it for some amount of time. So, you know, this is about how we envision health, not about limiting illness, right? We need healthy people. And if we're talking about reference man's exposures do result in cancer, current regulation of, you know, federal licenses for nuclear activities allow radiation at levels that we know have the capacity to cause cancer, have the capacity to cause infertility, birth defects, potentially even contribute to things like heart disease. Um, that one's a little bit harder to prove in the civilian population, but radiation is harmful. We are having activities that emit it. We're having federal regulators that are creating rules to allow those emissions. So if we're talking about all of that in the context of needing to have a healthy community, then we need to look at where the greatest harm occurs. And that is in female bodies and most particularly in female bodies who are young. We don't yet know why, but there's a new hypothesis that it has to do with a difference in the amount of stem cells in little boys compared to little girls circulating freely in our bodies and that the exposure of the stem cells leads to latent cancer that is then across the lifetime. We're not talking about little girl cancer, we're talking about female cancer originating from exposures in childhood and male cancers originating in exposures in childhood. And even if we just took a reference boy, if there's so much misogyny in our culture that we have to go for a reference boy, we'll be halfway there because he is five times more likely to be harmed than the adult male. It just happens that little girls in the data set that we have of people who live 60 years after all sharing a big, huge flash on a day in August in 1945, little girls who lived over the next 60 years got twice as much cancer as did those who were little boys in 1945. So that twice as much is how you end up with 10 times more than reference man. 
So if you're gonna be actually have integrity and say it's science-based, it's not a little boy, it's a little girl. But she now needs to be where we aim all of our effort to reduce exposures, reduce emissions, and deliver even the crappy, excuse me, did I say that? Yes, crappy level of protection that we have today for her at that point. From everything you've said, it sounds like this is first of all, a necessary step. And secondly, one that will have a protracted period of time before we have any hope of implementation of it. As you move forward, what can we, the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, do to be of support and assistance to you? Well, we're completely volunteer. We don't have a budget that supports paying me anything, so money would help. But I'm not going to stop just because I'm a volunteer. And so people need to protect their girls, protect their boys. I don't want a little girl to have to face down her physician. So it's not about educating the girls. It's about taking care of them. And then start talking to everybody that you know who's connected to this picture. Because in order for Reference Girl to be adopted, we're going to need a massive team of support. I'd echo what Mary said. And also, I appreciate you having us on the nuclear hot seat because I honestly was not aware that females were more suffering more harm for the same exposure until I heard Mary talk about it at a conference in 2015. So I think increased awareness that there is a problem that needs a solution will shorten the timeline it takes for that solution to be implemented. A possibility, Levy, is that somebody who's an enlightened surgeon general could require warnings on everything and that everything would be including airplane tickets and x-rays at the dental office and CT scans and nuclear reactors and buying a house near a nuclear reactor. I mean, the, the warnings would be quite substantial if they existed, like the cigarette warnings. Would they change the world? I don't know. But it's a different route than trying to go up against the nuclear addicted community that is pretty much on both sides of the regulated and regulator at this juncture. That could change, but at this juncture, there's kind of one community. And like Dave says, they get together once a year and schmooze, but they're in every licensing procedure I've been in and I've gone into four of them myself as an intervener. And you know, people are trying to do what they're doing well. It's just that what they're doing isn't good enough. Is there anything you haven't covered that you'd like to get to now? I think there's a lot of resource available on the Gender and Radiation Impact Project website, which is www.genderandradiation.org. And under the tab that says learn, we now have a whole page for Reference Girl, which is going to be growing. And we're going to be adding some other tabs there for more general um, radiation background information. But there's also videos of talks that I've given, not the one that Dave heard, but similar talks. And uh, I really commend people to check out how much has already been done and consider supporting the work. A few years ago, I looked at what the occupational radiation exposure limits were over the past 100 years. And I noticed they've been changed about four or five times over that century period. Every time the radiation limits were lowered, the more we knew, the less we could be exposed to the radiation hazard, which implies that perfect knowledge would be zero exposure. It's not a matter that we started out conservatively 
protecting people or protecting workers. And with time, we're able to relax that standard based on science. Just the opposite. Science informs us that we need better protection. And I think Mary and, and Griff have shown that the population that really needs protection is the female and the young females, which are being underprotected by current standards. I want to tag that population is the basis for another federal agency, the Environmental Protection Agency. And, you know, it's okay to talk about a population. That's basically what we have in epidemiology is, you know, groups of 100,000 people is how things are modeled. But we are a life cycle. I'm a biologist. You don't have a reference man or a population without every single piece of the life cycle. So I was giving a comment to the EPA and I asked them when they were gonna start writing regulations based on the most impacted part of the human life cycle being little girls. And the immediate response I got was that little girls are a subpopulation and they were going to get to subpopulations later. And I was on a phone bridge, so I just came back with, well, wait a second, little girls in Chicago and little girls in Moscow are subpopulations, but little girls are an inextricable link in the human life cycle. And colleagues who were present in person in the, the meeting, it was actually there with the guy who was I was talking to on the phone bridge, he was silent. And later they told me he literally sweat through his clothes because I counted, I didn't bail him out. Usually I'm nice and I, I say something else, but I waited and it was four minutes of silence in this federal meeting, unheard of. And he finally said, you are correct. And wow. I said, thank you. And then they went on to the next person, but they haven't done a darn thing about it. They still view little girls as a subpopulation, which is, basically a formula for extinction. This is clearly some of the most important work we can do in terms of coming up with a system that does more to safeguard us and our future from the dangers of radiation. We will have links up to your site and to some of the specific pages that you mentioned, Mary. And for now, I want to give you my gratitude for the work that you're doing and Dave for your support of the work that Mary is doing and your contribution to it. And thank you both for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. Thank, thank you for you. the work you do. And for your book. That was Mary Olson, Acting Director of Gender and Radiation Impact Project, and Dave Lockbaum, formerly Director of the Nuclear Safety Project of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Mary Olson is currently raising funds to support a 2021 project to define a new female-inclusive basis for radiation protection standards to help prevent unnecessary radiation exposure and reduce radiation harm. You can learn more by going to her website, genderandradiation.org, and of course, we will link to it on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 525. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, July 13, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclearinternational.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, opednews.com, genderandradiation.org, theguardian.com, counterpunch.org, arabnews.jp, 
dennisriches.wordpress.com and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you'd like a foolproof way of getting nuclear hot seat, you can have it delivered via email every week. It's easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll for the yellow box, and sign up for weekly email links to the latest show. You'll get it as soon as it's posted. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com, and we promise we take all of them seriously. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, Take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and look for the big red button. Anything you do once you click on it will help, and we really appreciate your support. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, Reminding you that the last thing that anyone who opposes nuclear wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There you've got it. That's it. You've all had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.